Ecclesiastes chapter 5. We will continue our discussion and examination of this book of wisdom. First, we will begin with the reading of the text. We're going to focus on the first seven verses as we get started. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore let your words be few, for a dream comes with much business, and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. Here in the start of Ecclesiastes chapter 5 are some powerful words. And I imagine as, as we have suggested that Solomon is the author of this particular piece of wisdom literature, it's fascinating to me that he writes these words, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. In particular because he would have been the first to uh, build and, and establish the first official house of God in the temple. And not to discredit the tabernacle by any means, but we know that Solomon was the one who was given permission by the Lord to construct the temple. And I imagine that that is on his mind as he pins these words. But this is a powerful section because it's, it's really the first glance at the overall theme of the book that we get because we're going to arrive in Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and the last verses of the entire text are going to instruct us to fear God and he's already establishing that, that theme right here in these initial words. As we look at the, the first few verses here of Ecclesiastes chapter 5, I can't help but see an emphasis on worship here, an emphasis on the relationship that we're to have with God one that is encompassed with humility and reverence and, and all of these other attributes. And it's interesting to me because I think what Solomon is trying to ultimately convey in these first few words is the need for us to have the proper attitude and proper uh, approach and proper conduct when we, when we stand before the Lord. You know, it made me reflect on, uh, on um, Cain and Abel briefly. When they approached God with a sacrifice, and one of their sacrifices was deemed acceptable by the Lord and the other was not, the key difference sometimes is thought to be the item that was sacrificed. For Cain, it was an offering of vegetation, and for Abel, it was an offering of an animal and some proposed that that's the difference that Abel offered an animal and that's why it was acceptable to God. I don't think that's the case. I think it was the ultimate attitude that lie behind the sacrifices. Because if you return to Genesis chapter 4 and those first uh, three or so verses, you'll see that Cain offered an offering. Cain made a sacrifice, generic, plain, not really much description of it. It was just a sacrifice. When Abel made his offering, it was of the first of his flock. It was the, the fat portions. It was the best of the best. There was a difference in attitude when they approached God in that form of worship. And when I hear these words, to guard your steps when you go to the house of God, and it's making me think about how we approach God with our worship it made me think of Nadab and Abihu. You can read about them in Leviticus chapter 10. And we're told there in, in verse um, 2, I'm sorry, in verse 1, that they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, something that God didn't command them to do. So they approached their, their time of, in worship here with a lack of obedience. They weren't 
fulfilling things the way God authorized it. And in the end, it took their lives. And when I sit here and and contemplate the idea of appearing before God and guarding our steps, I I think about that, um, that Pharisee who prayed in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, Luke chapter 18, and how he prayed not with the purpose of praising God, but of praising himself. And he didn't approach his his time in the presence of the Lord with any humility or any um, uh, attitude of of, um, respect. Instead, he approached it celebrating himself. I thank you, God, that I'm better than everyone else, is how he prayed. And so when you think about the converse of all of those examples that I just gave, you think about Abel offering the best of the best. You think about in, in the opposite of Nadab and Abihu, I think would ultimately be David when he moved the Ark of the Covenant. He failed the first time, but then he learned how he's supposed to do it. And t- down to the T, he did everything correctly in the moving of that Ark on the second attempt because he wanted to be obedient to God in the way that God wanted him to do things. And you can read about that in First Chronicles chapter 15. And then I think about the opposite of that praying Pharisee, and it's that tax collector who wouldn't even look to heaven while he prayed, who was so ashamed of himself and so humble in the way that he approached God that all he could say is, I'm a sinner, have mercy on me. You see, I think when we initiate this chapter of Ecclesiastes chapter 5, one thing it does for us, not the only thing it does for us, but one thing it does for us is it makes us really think about just how important it is to consider your attitude and your approach when you come to God with worship. And so that, that's the first thing that stands out to me with Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Let me turn it over to these guys and let them chime in. You know, we look at uh, the beginning of this chapter in the first seven verses, and in what has preceded it, we've seen it the writer, this, this old preacher, talking about all these things going around someone who is following God, the people who surround the context that he lives in and that we have to live in and how all the things around him are vanity. Well, in chapter 5, I believe he's going to zone in on his readers, his audience, and talk about how even within you there are going to be those who are taken away by this vanity. See, because I think it's important for us to remember the purpose of the book itself. We found in Ecclesiastes 12, the fear God and to keep His commandments was the conclusion of the whole matter, but also it's important for us to remember the recipients of this book. You look at this picture on the screen, we've talked about it a few times, this idea of the ecclesia, that is the root word of Ecclesiastes. This is the audience that received the book of Ecclesiastes. This is the congregation, the assembly, the church, the ecclesia of Israel. And for this chapter, he's going to stop talking about the things, or at least these first seven verses, the things around followers of God and start talking about followers of God themselves and how we can be taken away by vain worship. Can we can be taken away by vain behavior. And so we look at this book and we see that it's written by this old wise preacher that has lived through life and has given all this advice to the ecclesia, the, the assembly of Israel. He's trying to warn them that if you don't watch out, you will find yourself worshiping in vain. If you don't watch out, you will find yourself ruining your worship by your mouth. And let's see how he does that, and he tells them this warning of how they should not only worship, but how they should behave. He, first, he says, you need to walk prudently when you go near to the house of God. The ESV, I believe it said, guard your steps when you go near to the house of God. What's he trying to say here? What, is, what does it mean to walk prudently? What does it mean to guard your steps? Well, I think what he's trying to say is, You can't just show up any old way. 
Now, I know we come as we are in our sins and we lay them down at God's feet. I believe that wholeheartedly. But I think sometimes we show up with the complete wrong mindset and the complete wrong motives when we show up to the house of God. Well, Ben, how does that happen? How can you show up to the wrong, with the wrong mindset and the wrong heart and the wrong motive? Well, this happens all the time. You ever, uh, on your way to the church building, now my family never did this, by the way, but on the way to the church building, the whole way, one kid says to the next kid, and, and then they start fighting, and then the mom starts yelling back at the kid to be quiet, and the dad starts yelling back at the kids to be quiet, and then the mom and dad start going at it, and again, it never happened with my family. But I know by the smiles I'm seeing and the nods and the elbows I'm seeing that this happens a lot. But guess what happens when you pull into the parking lot? Take time to be holy. Right? I mean, it's just, it is time to be righteous before everyone, right? I mean, there is nothing wrong with our family when we show up. I mean, there is not a single problem with us. We table that until after it's time to get back in the car. Well, you're smiling and you look good. You got your suit on and you look great. But all throughout worship, you're thinking about that fight you had on the way to church, on the way to worship. You don't show up to the house of God any old way. You don't show up with a mindset that is not ready to go before the throne of God. You don't show up any old way You don't go just because you have to. You go because you can't not go to church and to worship with the people of God. And what he says is, if you don't come to worship with God with the right heart, you're offering a sacrifice of fools. He says it in verse 1, that I would and draw near to the hear rather than to give the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they do evil. And when we come to the house of God in a wrong manner, with a wrong motive, with a wrong heart, we are offering the sacrifice of fools and in turn are unknowingly doing evil in the sight of God. That's exactly what I think the text is talking about here. But is it not the case that this is not just a description or a prescription for the assembly of Israel, we could use this as well because Jesus was the one in John chapter 4 and verse 24, He's telling the Samaritan woman that God is searching those who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. You see, there's no, there's no uh, way that we can worship God totally in spirit and leave the truth out of it And there's no way that we can worship God totally in the truth and leave the Spirit out of it. When we have all the Spirit and no truth, we become liberal. And one of my professors says we're so open-minded that when when we bend over, our brain falls out. Well, when you're so stuck to the truth that you have no Spirit and love and compassion and concern for one another, guess what happens? He said that's when your pants squeak when you walk. You know, you're just so tight, you're so clean, you're so perfect that you just float on air. We have to be both in spirit and in truth. And if we're not, we're not who God is seeking. Because in John chapter 4 and verse 24, Jesus himself said, God is seeking those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. And that all starts with how we even approach the house of God. If we're not walking prudently or guarding our steps before we even show up, then there's no way that we're going to be ready to worship God in the manner that He would have us. So that's the first thing he talks about is how we worship. This is a warning about how we worship God as followers of God. And then secondly, in verses 2-7, through he's going to talk about how we should behave as followers of God. 
If you aren't worshiping as a follower of God should, then you're definitely not going to be behaving as a person of God should. And that's what he starts saying in verse 2. Do not be rash with your mouth, and let not your heart utter anything hastily before God. The same way we can't just show up to the house of worship in any old way, we should not and cannot talk to God in any old way. When we talk to God and go before the throne of God, we've got to come a certain way. It says we can't come hastily. We can't come to the throne of God and not realize who it is we are talking to. We are talking to the Creator of the universe, the sustainer of everything, the person who is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, and holds the future in His hands. And then He says, don't make a promise or a vow to God if you're not willing to keep it. Have you ever found yourself saying, Lord, if you'll give me this, then I will do this. And then he gives it to you, and then you don't do your part of the deal. We do that with each other, do we not? Kids tell your parents, if you do this, if, 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 if you take me to Disney World, then I will clean my room, I will not talk back, I will do all this, I will do that. And then they take it to Disney World, well, you didn't ever clean your room. You didn't ever do your part. When we come before the throne of God, we've got to word our words in this worthy manner. Because we can't go to God and say, if you do this, I will then do that. Because God is a God who holds us to it. He has no pleasure in fools, the text says. Pay what you have vowed. It's better to have not vowed than to have vowed and not paid when it comes to our vows with God. You see, when we are hasty with our mouth, when we are rash with our mouth, when we do all of these things and we go before God and not realize who we're talking to as if He's just some guy that we can pull the shades over, when we do that, the text says that we allow our mouth to cause our flesh to sin. Verse 6. And God is therefore going to be angry and God is not going to be pleased at all. And that's why James was the one who said in James chapter 1 and verse 26 that if a man cannot tame his tongue, his religion is useless. It's the same for us in the assembly today as it was the assembly of Israel. We have got to be a people who come to the house of God in a certain manner. And we've got to be a people who behave in a certain manner. And if not, then we are just taken away by verse 7, this vanity, the same way as the world is. You see, he's been really hard on the world, has he not, in this whole book? Everything under the sun, he's been very hard on all the things under the sun. Well, now he's talking about you and me tonight. And he's asking the same question, is there any difference in you and the world? Or are you consumed with the same vanity that the world is consumed with? Um, when I uh, read this um, section, I was almost automatically reminded of uh, the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, I mean, Matthew, chapter 5, verse, uh, I think it is 23, when Jesus was saying that if you have any, I mean, when you go up to uh, the altar to offer, uh, when you remember something that you have, uh, that you have, that your brother have, has against you, then uh, leave the sacrifice there and go reconcile first and come to the uh, to and uh, offer the sacrifice so uh, I think that is a principle uh, throughout the Old Testament and New Testament we have to be a certain person as we offer our offerings 
as we worship God, as we try to do what we think God wants us to do. If we fail to be such a person, as you know, in our terms, a Christian, then it could be useless. Even if we do almighty works, so many great works or so many uh, wonderful things uh, in our lives. But if we are not a true Christian, if, we, if our heart is not right before him, what good is it? I think uh, the, the first verse is saying that. I mean, that is a principle of the, of the old Bible, of the old word of God. So uh, that's what we have to pay attention very closely, that if we are right in that regard. So I, I think that is what obeying God's voice means. Obeying God's mo- voice uh, does not necessarily mean to keep some rules and statutes uh, like some you know, sacrifice rules and you know, priesthood rules. And in the New Testament, only uh, being baptized or taking Lord's Supper every week uh, and uh, giving contribution, but above, it is above and beyond that. And also, it has to be the foundation of all those things. We have to be a certain person uh, who God wants us to be. And that is, that is uh, I think, obeying God's voice. God's voice, if we obey God's voice, what is the voice? What is the word that God uh, told us to be? When the Bible says, be holy, because I am your Lord, because I'm your God. I am holy, and you are, if you are my children, you have to be holy. You have to be different. You have to be above the standard of the of the world, and you have to uh, fit my standard, and that is holy. So obeying God's voice is really the principle and the first and foremost commandment that we have to keep, and 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 it means for us to be uh, a Christian in the New Testament, in the Old Testament, a godly person. Uh, if we fail, we will be like those who uh, exiled from the land. You know, uh, let me quote Jeremiah chapter seven. God was so angry with the uh, people in Jerusalem then. Uh, so he says this to Jeremiah, uh, Jeremiah chapter seven verse twenty-one. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, add your burnt offerings to your sacrifice and eat the flesh. For in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I did not speak to your fathers or command them concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices. But this command I gave them, obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people. And walk in all the way that I command you, that it may be well with you. So the commandment is basically obey my voice, obey my commandment. And this is what Jesus uh, really tried to help the people in Jesus' time to understand. And I uh, think the uh, verse which summarizes what Jesus tried to teach the people in that, uh, at a time was uh, in uh, Matthew chapter 9, verse 13. Uh, Matthew chapter 9, verse 13 says, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but, but sinners. So what Jesus wants us to be and what God wants his people, his children to be, is 
people who have mercy in heart, who have love in heart, who lives by love, and who who acts by love. So obeying God's voice is just doing what God wants us to be, and and it is love. It is all about love. So. Um, that's why I believe Jesus said in the uh, Summer Mount, chapter, uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 23 and following, it says that we have to first reconcile with the brothers. Even though I didn't do anything wrong to, to them, but if they have something, some grudge upon us, then I can sense that. Then, you know, why, do, why don't we go to them and reconcile with them before we go to worship, before we do some works for God. That's what God is pleased. God didn't, God doesn't want the sacrifice. God doesn't want our works. He is almighty God, but the most, uh, the best thing God wants from us is for us to be such a person, such a Christian, such a uh, obedient children. So uh, I think uh, the first verse of this chapter it really uh, gives us the principle, the principle of all testaments, of all the words of God. So that's, uh, and which means uh, we have to be such a person. Um, and then he gives us the specific uh, things that we have to uh, remind ourselves. First, you know, about the words, and second uh, section from verse 8. Uh, we have to think about uh, what our focus should be in this world. So, um, um, because uh, two brothers already have said about the rest of the thing, I will stop here. All right, let's turn our attention to verse 8 through the end of the chapter because I'm certain some of you are starting to panic that we've already spent this much time on seven verses. So beginning in verse 8, If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil, just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil this is the gift of God, for he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. There's a lot in those verses that take up the second half of this chapter. Ben, what were your initial thoughts and observations on this? You know, when I read verses 8 and 9, I was uh, kind of confused. Is the old preacher, is Solomon trying to tell us that we should not care about oppression and uh, injustice and certain different things that go on in society? Is he trying to tell us that we should not care? I mean, he says, don't marvel at this matter, and what is he trying to say? Well, I don't think he's trying to say that we shouldn't care about oppression or injustice or different things that the government takes part in. I believe he's 
actually just trying to say you shouldn't expect anything more from government. You shouldn't expect anything more from government than to see oppression and injustice and different things that go on within government. Why? Because when it comes to justice under the sun, you shouldn't expect to get equal, to get right, to get just when it comes to those who are under the sun. You should instead expect to see corruption, injustice, and inequality. Why? Well, that's because the people that are in charge under the sun are flawed people. People that have biases, people that have prejudice, people that have certain things within their heart that are wrong. Because they live life under the sun. The people that are administrating this government are flawed individuals. And so when we see government oppression, when we see injustice, when we see certain things going on, He's saying don't marvel at these things because guess what? This is going to happen under the sun. I've already explained to you all these different things under the sun that is full of vanity, full of grasping at the wind, full of all this evil stuff. Even though God has set eternity in our hearts, He said a couple chapters ago, He still looked at the earth and He saw wickedness and evil instead. And so even, especially in government, we should not expect to see anything different. Do not marvel when you see oppression and violence and the perversion of justice because you are living a life that is under the sun and those around you are under the sun. And the people that are administrating this government, they are flawed individuals. Why? Because verse 10, they love silver. To the point that they don't understand that they will never get enough of it to satisfy themselves. They will get that silver, that rich, that riches, those riches, by any means necessary. If it takes oppression, if it takes perversion of justice, they will get it. They are also flawed because they only want to see their goods increase, verse 11. Regardless of who is the one who brought the increase. They only want to see the prophet. They only want to sleep well at night. Verse 13, they only want to have these riches to keep for themselves. No matter how it hurts someone else. And so we see this as a very negative view as to those who administrate justice, who are in charge of government over the world. And and even in Solomon's day, this was a thing. And man, it was about to become an even bigger thing after he was dead and gone. Because as we've studied last week and weeks before, we see that the assembly of Israel is about to be taken into captivity. Not too long after Solomon's death. And so they're going to be the first-hand experiment of this oppression, of this injustice, of this perversion of justice. He's telling them before he goes, don't be marveled at this. You're not going to get equal justice under the sun. The only just person is God. And that's exactly what he's about to start talking about. Listen, these people that look for silver, they look for riches, they look for goods, they look for all this great things to keep for themselves, their day's coming. Their day's coming because he says, but those riches perish through misfortune. When he begets a son, there is nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, naked shall he return to go as he came, and he shall take nothing from his labor which he may carry away in his hand. And so when we look at these individuals that are in high esteem in government places of authority. We look at these people that are only concerned about their income and their silver and their riches and their goods and all this increasing to keep for themselves. Their, their day is coming. 
There's coming a day when those things cannot be taken with them. You think back to all those pharaohs in Egypt. You look at all those pharaohs who rose to the height of society. There was no one comparable to them. In fact, they were looked upon as gods among their people. But when they died, what could they take with them? They stashed those little tombs with all the gold and all the possessions that they had gained over their time, their most favorite and most prized things, but guess where they still are? They're still under the ground somewhere or in some museum. They didn't take it with them. And it's the same for us. It's the same for these people that Solomon's talking about. And it's vanity. It's a huge waste of time. You know that favorite uh, memento in your house? You can't take it with you. You know, when I was a teenager, we had tornadoes come through in the state of Alabama, 2011. We had 200-something tornadoes in one day, April 27, 2011. Fortunately, my house was not damaged. Fortunately, my congregation's church, the, the building was not damaged. But that wasn't the case for people that lived about a mile or two away from our farm. Completely wiped out their houses and our sister congregation down the street. And so that congregation had to come worship with us for, a, for many months as they built a new building and as they tried to recoup from all of this loss that they had experienced. And one of my best friends lost his house and every single thing he had. Not a single stitch of clothing was left. Not a single painting. Not a single photo album. Not a single thing but the slab concrete was left at their house. And this kid was 17 years old and I asked him, how are you getting through this? Because back then I was thinking, well, I got my car I just bought for my dad. I, I, I got all these things. I got my PlayStation. I got my clothes. I got my trophies. I got all these different things that I prize so much. And I thought, if I was like that guy, how would I ever get through that? And this guy, at 17 years old, looks at me and goes, well, I couldn't take it with me anyway. My mind was blown. You know, you expect to hear that in a sermon. You expect to hear that from a pulpit. You expect to hear that from someone who may be a little bit older. But this 17-year-old kid tells me I couldn't take it with me anyway. So why should I be attached to it today? That's exactly, I think, what he's talking about in verse 15. We enter this world naked with nothing for our own. And when we leave this world, we will take nothing with us. And so I think that should cause all of us to look at ourselves and think to ourselves, what do we take a little too seriously? when it comes to our possessions. You know, my granddad always used to say, there's nothing wrong with possessing things. The problem comes when those things start to possess you. That's when there's a problem. And so when we look at this world, and we look at all these people under the sun, we should not be shocked or marvel at the fact that there is injustice, that there is oppression, that there are people who are simply looking at their bottom line and are going to get to that point no matter what it takes. But as followers of God, the same way we have to worship in a rightful manner, we have to behave in a rightful manner, we have to have the patience that God expects from His followers. That our reward is not here on this earth. Our reward is in the one to come. 
So what can we do in that time with that patience? Well, he says you need to just enjoy what you can, what you can enjoy. You need to eat, you need to drink, you need to look at all that God has allowed you to accomplish because that's your heritage. That is your lot, the ESV says. So that's what I'm thinking in a short amount of time, as I just expressed, Kyle. <laughs> okay, um, I think, uh, I mean, I'm not talking about all the verses here uh, from verses, verse 8 to 20, but uh, from this section, I sense that uh, the scripture is teaching that the tranquility and quietness of life is so important. Uh, if we, you know, think about too much uh, the things that are going on in this society, we may lose our peace and about injustice and some oppressions and social problems, political problems. I'm not saying that we should uh, close our eyes to those things, but even if we have to do something about those things as Christians too, but sometimes we have to remind ourselves that we have God who is the judge and that we can get some quietness and peace in our heart because God knows everything and everything will be judged by him and his justice is perfect and so even though we can see some who are so afflicted by injustices and some poverty and some, you know, even natural disasters. Yeah, that's right. We have to do something that we can do uh, for them. But the rest of the things, we should be able to, uh, you know, leave it to God. And God will, ju uh, God will do what he can do, I mean, what he uh, will do, and also God will judge those who did uh, injustice, even in our, uh, you know, in the society. And also what uh, steals our tranquil and quiet life is, I'm pretty sure because I was there one time, I mean, sometime in my past, you know, love of money. If I have some lust for something in this world, definitely I will lose peace. I will lose you know, tranquil life and quiet life and even godly life. So the you know, Kohalat here, the preacher and, and uh, so wise man advise us not to have love of money. Not to have not only uh, love of money, but love of anything in this world. And he uh, concludes that the best thing we can do is to lead the life that God allows us, get allowed us, like, you know, walk and enjoy and do good in our lives. Just be quiet and lead a tranquil life. And that is what God is pleased. Um, let me quote uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2. Uh, this is uh, from verse 1. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, uh, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that, this is important, I think, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and uh, dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. So, 
um, this is the thing that God is pleased. So even if we have to take care of our brothers and sisters in, in Christ and also our neighbors, and, and sometimes we have to uh, raise our uh, voice to something that is really wrong and, you know, in, uh, unjust, but we still have to remind ourselves constantly and also, as First Timothy says, uh, we have to pray that everything should go well uh, by the authorities and governors and also the people that, I mean, there is the purpose, God-given purpose, that we can lead a tranquil and quiet and godly and good lives in our lives. That is the beauty, uh, I think, uh, of this chapter, uh, I mean, section. Let me close this out with these thoughts. It's interesting to me, if you look back there in chapter 5, at verse 13, that Solomon identifies the grievous evil that he has seen, which amounts to the love of money, when you read the following verses. But then in a kind of twist that we haven't seen in this book before, you get to verse 18. Behold, what, I've, what I have seen to be good. He's not talking about the vanity stuff anymore, and he's not talking about the evil stuff anymore. What he's going to talk about in these concluding verses of the chapter is what he's found that is good. It's to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Verse 19, everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. When I read those verses and reflect on what Solomon is identifying as that which is good, there are two things that stand out to me. One thing that is good is to be productive, to not be lazy, to not be one who refuses to contribute, but to be productive. Makes me think about 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, the instructions that are given there about those who choose to be idle. And how Paul in those instructions says, hey, if someone doesn't work, they don't eat. If someone's going to be idle in a busybody, stay away from them. Because the expectation in Scripture is summarized quite well in Colossians chapter 3, verse 23 and 24. Whatever you do, work heartily. As for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ. You want to know what's good? Be productive. Work as for the Lord. But the other thing he says there does relate to money in particular. Because he's talked about how the love of money has manifested itself and how the love of money produces all of this these bad things, but he's not saying having money in and of itself is an evil. Because there in chapter 5 and verse 19, he clearly indicates that some people have been blessed by God with wealth and possessions. And he says to those people, it's good to be generous. He's echoing the same thing that Paul will teach in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Verse 17, as for the rich in this present age, there's nothing wrong with having money. There's nothing wrong with being rich if you have the right mindset and attitude and perspective towards money. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. And they, those who are rich, are to do good, to be rich in good works, and to be generous and ready to share. I think Solomon is saying the very things that Paul will utter centuries later. That the good thing in life, the good that he sees, the thing that is worthwhile and appropriate is to be productive and to be generous. And I think he's trying to tell us that that's what will occupy your life with joy if you do those things. 
This is a great chapter in Ecclesiastes, and there's a lot to be brought out of it. And I'm grateful for uh, Mingu and Ben for the thoughts they've shared with us tonight. And at this time, we're going to close our time of study by being led in prayer by Brother Mingu. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this beautiful day in which we worship to you, uh, praise you with songs and um, heard your voice through the sermon uh, Brother Kyle uh, gave us and also uh, had fellowship uh, with each other. Thank you for this congregation which is rese uh, resembling heaven that we really uh, want to go someday. Please help us to be more like heaven uh, in this congregation that we can draw many souls to have peace and to have satisfaction and to have to find purpose of their lives. Thank you for the uh, leaders of this congregation, elders, deacons, and ministers, and hard workers uh, who are leading this congregation in spirit and in truth. And please help them to continue uh, the work that we can uh, get better and better every day so that we can please you and your son, Jesus Christ, who saved us by his blood. Please lead us into uh, the week that we can experience heaven in our lives again and uh, get ourselves better every day, ultimately to go the place that you are preparing for us as the reward. Thank you for Jesus Christ who uh, sacrificed himself for us to be saved. In his name we pray, amen. Amen.